Uh, well, thank you, Richard, and uh, Happy New Year. That's um, less of an enthusiastic, I'm going to embrace 2020 and more of it. It's been a really busy Christmas and I'm recovering from the sniffles um, sort of response. But uh, as Richard has said, um, it's my privilege to start us off on our new series, our series in, in Romans. So if you do have a Bible, please turn to the book of Romans. It's church Bible, page number three, or six, or nine, three, nine, nine, three, nine. As Richard has said, we're not going to uh, tackle all 16 uh, chapters in one go, uh, nor try and squeeze it into uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, but in the next two months, we're going to look at the first five uh, chapters. Some chapters will go a little slower, some chapters will go a little faster, um, and it's my privilege to do the first two weeks and then hand it over um, to the next speakers. But we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, and then we're going to have a reading in Romans chapter 15. So Romans chapter 1, verse number 1, this is what the Word of God says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. Who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just turn over to chapter 15. We'll refer to this uh, as we look at what Paul's purpose was in writing this book. Chapter 15. And we'll just break in at verse number 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way round to Aurelium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. And this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room to, for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
This is what the Word of God says. Turn back uh, to chapter 1, but as I mentioned, we will be looking at chapter 15 as we go through. I don't know what you consider to be the most influential piece of literature. Uh, certainly what has been the most influential uh, piece of literature for our life and our culture here today. Uh, some would maybe say the Magna Carta. Uh, and if you're an American cousin here, you'd probably want to say the Declaration of Independence or your Constitution. But there is a good argument to be made that this letter... This letter of Paul to the Romans has had the greatest impact and the biggest influence in our modern history. This is the the letter that sparked the flame in that German monk, Martin Luther, that would ignite the Reformation in the 15th century and change the course of modern European history. It was this letter that converted in the 18th century John Wesley, who would go on to lead one of the greatest gospel revivals in the history of the UK and would influence generations and generations to follow. As John Stott says of this book, it's a a timeless manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. It's the fullest, plainest and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. But on another level, it's a letter. It's a letter that's written by Paul to the church in Rome. And in this introduction, it's, 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 it's Paul's way of introducing himself to these Christians. He hadn't planted this church in Rome, and, and, and they'd never met him. And so, like many of us today, if Paul slips in the door, many of us wouldn't recognize him. And it was the same for the church and the Christians in Rome. And so he gives them this introduction that's, that's one of the largest and fullest introductions in, in any letter uh, of Paul to, 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 before he um, launches into the, the real meat of, of, the, of the letter. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, the, these first seven verses. And I just want to break it very simply into two parts. Firstly, Paul is credentialed to be God's messenger. And secondly, God's good news is that Jesus is the Christ. Or put another way, firstly, why should we listen to Paul? Why should we pay him any attention? And what is this message that he is so eager to bring us? So firstly then, Paul is fully credentialed to be God's messenger. I don't think Paul had business cards, and I'm pretty sure he hadn't got round to setting up a LinkedIn profile. But if he did, I'm pretty sure this first verse is exactly what it would say. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is how Paul would have introduced himself. He gives us these three things. Firstly, his authority is not from himself. It's from someone else. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. Secondly, his vocation, his role in the business, his, his job, if you like, is to be a special emissary, a unique office, a foundational messenger, an apostle, called to be an apostle. And thirdly, his purpose. He's been separated for a, a purpose. And here we have the key theme that he will explore in the rest of this letter. He's been set apart 
to the gospel of God. This good news, this proclamation, his purpose is to take this message which is from God and bring it to the nations. I don't know if you are prone on public transport or in cafes or on planes to talk to the person next to you. But often it goes something like, so what's your name and and what is it you do yourself? And imagine you're sitting next to someone and they said, well, actually, it's quite a mouthful. I'm under the command of Jesus Christ and God has given me the foundational task in announcing the good news about his son to the whole world. That's what Paul would have said. And those are weighty claims, credentials that qualifies Paul to bring us this message, this proclamation, this announcement, this gospel of God. And why these Christians in Rome who didn't know him and hadn't met him should sit up and listen. And why every Christian needs to pay attention to this letter. You know, Some people try and create a division between the message of Paul and the message of Jesus Christ. It's as if to say, you know, if you really want to understand Christianity, then we we only have to take the words of Jesus. But we see here that that is completely false. There is no distinction between the teaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles. We see here that Paul and his message is 100% commissioned and given and sent from God himself in the service of Jesus Christ. Other leaders and teachers of Paul's day are now largely forgotten. Their works evaporated into history or had very little influence. But as we've considered this message, this letter, the most influential letter that's had an impact on us today because of the credentials of Paul. Before we move on into chapter one, I just want us to sidebar here for a moment. And as we introduce ourselves to this letter, just consider what it was that caused Paul to to pick up his pen and the purpose and motivation for writing this letter to Rome. It's often particularly helpful whenever the biblical writer tells us exactly what his motivations were. Um, Often it's snuck in at the end of the book, so you have to read all the way through to find out sometimes why they were writing. But we've read here in chapter 15 that unlike other letters, like something like Galatians, when Paul is outraged and disturbed about the false teaching that has come into the churches in Galatia, or or Corinth, where he's heard messages about their behavior, uh, and he he boldly and uh, needs to to deal with with issues that are going on in in the church in, in Corinth, we read there in Romans chapter 15 that what Paul has heard about the Christians in Rome is actually quite positive. He said that they're full of goodness, full of knowledge. They're able to instruct each other. Yes, he's going to have to speak boldly about certain issues, but by and large, their report card is doing really well. So why has Paul gone to such lengths and written this wonderful letter that has had such an impact? Well, as we read... Paul says it's it's less about what's going on with you guys in Rome, and it's actually more to do with what's going on with me. Paul writes this letter at at a sort of pivotal moment, a hinge point in his own career, in his own ministry, um, in his work of proclaiming 
Christ. He, he, he said, as we read, that, that he's been working for, for years, close to over a decade in the, the area around from Jerusalem and around uh, ancient uh, Asia Minor. And the gospel has, has taken root and it's grown and churches have been planted. And as he, he reflects back on the, the last 10 years, the, the last decade of work and graft, he senses a sense of closure. And he's now desperate to take the gospel to new areas, to, to new territories. And so as he brings this chapter of his ministry to a close, he looks out to Spain and out to the western part of the Roman Empire. And he, he, he's desperate, he's longing to come and to take the gospel to new territories. And so he plans to come to Rome to build a partnership with them and to launch in this new phase of gospel ministry. And so we get this masterpiece, if you like, as a, as a sort of summary of, of his life's work and what it is that he's devoted his time to. But it's also a, a call for us. It's, a, it's, it's an invitation to the church in Rome to join him, to join together, to be fully committed in bringing the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, first to themselves and then to new territories. And I know that Romans has a bit of a reputation. Some people have privately admitted to me it seems like such a difficult book. It can seem quite dry and quite dense. And yes, absolutely, there are times when it will be dense and it will be detailed. It is, of course, the, the meatiest, probably, of Paul's letters. But I want you to imagine a picture of Paul. He's just come to the close of a decade, like we have. He's tired, he's beaten, he's bruised, and he's sore. He sees the ministry of the missionary journeys that we read about in Acts have, have come to a close. But he is desperate to push on. He is desperate to push on in the proclamation of the gospel. And so he writes this letter to Rome to enthuse them, to, to call them to action, to call them to become his partners, to stand with him. And so too it comes to us as we embark on this new year, new decade. Will we stand united with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel, first to ourselves and then to every nook and cranny in Belfast and then to the ends of the earth. First then, Paul's credentials to be the messenger and his motivations and purpose for writing the book. Secondly then, in the, back in chapter 1, in verses 2 to 7, Paul summarizes the the good news, the message, the proclamation that he has been called to and is inviting the Romans to join him uh, in God's good news that is Christ. Jesus is the Christ. I guess in order to, to prime the, <coughs> the pump, if you like, or to not miss the heart of the pitch, uh, Paul doesn't waste words and gives this magnificent introductory sketch of God's great good news in the first paragraph. It is really one of the greatest summary explanations for the good news, what God's announcement really is. 
And so if we flick on to the next slide, we can see I've broken it down here into the three parts starting in verse number two. Firstly, Paul begins, this message God has promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This message, this proclamation that, that Paul has been separated to and has been, uh, is, is taken to the nations, this message is not new. It's not modern. It's not recently being created. In fact, it's being grounded in years and years of ancient history. It originates in the Jewish scriptures, Paul says. This is the message that God gave to Adam, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And perhaps the greatest of those promises that God made through those, and those ancient people was to give great King David a son that would be a great and eternal king. God said to David, I will establish the throne of your son forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And Paul says this message, this proclamation that, that I have, that I've been given, that I'm asking you to join with me in, to take to the nations, this is the fulfillment of all that God has been working towards and promising through the ancient scriptures. And Paul says then, secondly, this is fulfilled in God's Son. Paul has actually already told us this. He's, he's hinted at this. Remember, he called himself, what was the first thing he called himself? A servant of Christ Jesus. We probably don't notice it because we're so familiar with it, but so often Paul uses the term for Jesus Christ. He, it, it, the term is, it, it, it can sort of drift past us because we're so used to hearing it, but it, it's not another name for Jesus, like a, a surname or a, a middle name. It's a title, a title, the Messiah, the anointed one. And attached to that title is all the expectations of the promises of God that a savior king, the son of David, eternal kingdom would come. And God's good news, God's proclamation, God's announcement is that he's here. The Christ is here. It's Jesus. How do we know that? How come Paul is so sure? Well, he says in verse number four, because God has raised him from the dead. Paul pulls together here in verse number three and verse number four, two of the most loaded lines in all of scripture. Firstly, God's son was descendant, a son of David, according to the flesh. But secondly, and more importantly, he was declared or appointed son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. Firstly, Jesus was born, a baby born in the line of David. He takes that box. He was born in the same weakness of flesh that makes up you and me. What mercy of God to enter in and as a son of David. But more, that same son went down into death, the depths of our desperate condition, and destroyed death and was raised to life again. And, and Paul says that resurrection, that was his official coronation, if you like. He's shown now in power and majesty to be the Christ, the true son of David, the promised king. 
I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And at the resurrection, it was as if God, through his spirit, announced to the world, announced to the universe, this is the son of God in power. He alone is worthy. He now sits on the highest throne. He is the king of king and the Lord of lords. Jesus, now still with his humanity, is also the all-conquering, respected king, anointed supreme over all the universe. And that is the good news. That is the good news at its core. No wonder Paul exclaims, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus the Messiah is Lord. As Graham Kendrick puts in his hymn, Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, Love indestructible in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Oh, what a mystery. Both meekness and majesty bow down and worship, for this is your God. That is the hub of the announcement that Paul has to make. It's going to take 15 chapters for him to unpack all the implications for you and for me and for those in Rome and for all the nations of the world. But this is something to shout about. This is the heart of the gospel message. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is at least one thing that Kanye West gets right. Jesus Christ is Lord. But it doesn't stop just with the announcement. The third thing that Paul says in this summary of the gospel message is that this message about the Messiah who has come demands a response. Paul's mission is to proclaim this message and as he puts it, to bring about in verse number five, the obedience of faith. It's critical. As Paul repeats it, Number, numerous times, we, met, we read it in chapter 15, he mentions it in chapter 16. The obedience of faith is the purpose of why he's bringing this announcement to the world. Purposefully, that little phrase, the obedience of faith, it can actually be understood, I guess, in two different ways. So in the one sense, the gospel call, the gospel announcement that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is Lord, it demands a response, and that response it demands is faith. To obey the gospel is to believe. And as we go through this book, we're going to see time and time again, as the gospel is shown to us, as it's declared to us, as it's explained to us, it calls us to obey in faith. But also the little phrase, the obedience of faith, it could also mean that the faith that we have in the gospel leads to actual obedience, a life of righteousness. And that is also what Paul is going to expand upon in this book, that Faith in Christ alone is what saves, but faith in Christ is never alone because it always leads to a life that's transformed. As I say, it's going to take 15 chapters for Paul to fully unpack all of the implications of what that means. The final thing Paul says about this message is that it's for the sake of his name. When Jesus is proclaimed, both in word and in deed, then Jesus is recognized for who he is, the king, 
the promised king, the risen Messiah. And he's worshipped for who he is and what he has done. The goal of this gospel proclamation is that his name would be honored. And where? Well, its reach is now unlimited. He finishes chapter, verse number five, for the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. God's message in dealing with it started off with this little nation over 1,500 years limited to this unique nation in the, in the Middle East has now gone global. God is taking this message to the nations. And so now the great King David's great son, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, through his resurrection has unleashed new life for all the peoples of the world. And of course, this is what we've seen as put the fire in Paul's belly uh, to continue this work, to continue the proclamation. So let me conclude here. If I was to do a text message summary of what I think Paul's saying in these seven verses, I think he's saying, here's who I am. Here's the message. Are you in? Here's who I am. Here's the message. Are you in? None of us are Paul, and that's a good thing. None of us are expected to be Paul. But he is asking us to partner with him. He's asking the Roman church to partner with him. He's asking us to partner with him and to be fully in on the gospel of God. Are you in? David has reminded us that this is a significant year for the church and its history, and we do have a strong gospel heritage. But I wondered, as I was looking at this passage and as David was speaking this morning, what would it take for the next five years to be the most fruitful in our history? What would it take for the next two years, the next ten years, to be the most fruitful in Crescent Church's history? I don't think after reading this letter and spending time with Paul in this letter over the last few months, I could put a limit on his expectation for the work of the gospel at Crescent this year and in the next two, five, ten years or whatever number of years the Lord gives us. What would it look like if at the end of 2020 there was 10, 20, 30 more people standing shoulder to shoulder with us, praising the name of Jesus Christ because they'd come to recognize that he was the promised Messiah. They come to recognize that he is worthy of all worship. They've responded in faith and obedience. Well, where do we start if that's what we want? If we want to see Crescent Church become more fruitful for God? Well, we start here. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church. We start with what the Holy Spirit has given us in the words of Paul. We read it here. We read it ourselves. Let's discuss it over coffee. Let's pray it through. Let's let it enter our hearts and our minds and start to change us. And then it will start to have an impact around. We start to look out with the same perspective of Paul, shaped by the gospel of God. I don't know about you, but, you know, we, we really tried to invite some people to the carol services, but at one point we sort of turned around and we said, where have all of our non-Christian friends gone? We've been so busy with family, with work, with church. We don't have to travel 
as far as Paul had to travel, the nations, we live in the nations. They're on our doorstep, next door neighbor, our workplaces, in the kids' school, the local sports club, whatever. But we have to make the effort like Paul did. What if each of us committed to spending time this year with someone who doesn't yet know that Jesus Christ is Lord? Maybe invite them along to engage on the, the 15th of January or along to some of the 150th celebration services. Week six of this series, we've actually earmarked it, and David Russell is going to be preaching Romans chapter four. And we would love it if we all tried to bring guests and friends and family along and we'll be a more evangelistic uh, presentation from Romans chapter four. That, I think, is the challenge of Romans to us as a church as we embark upon its study. God is very gracious. And let me just conclude with a story. I'm not very good at stories. You include more stories, I'm told. Over Christmas, Susie caught up with her uh, university friends. I'm going to embarrass her here. Slightly over 10 years ago, Susie rolled into halls of residence in Exeter University. Uh, innocent, pasty-faced. And she met Reb and Rach and Yaz and Gemma and Steph. And um, they would end up living together for the next three years. And in God's grace, Steph was already a Christian. So they were outnumbered two to, to four. And the other four had never met a gospel-believing, authentic Christian before who was living that, like Jesus Christ is Lord and so they met again, as they do each year, and ten years later, now five of them of the six are professing Christians. And indeed, two husbands got converted as well. And they now are teaching their children that Jesus Christ is Lord. It didn't seem like much, just two girls who were taught the gospel, who wanted to live like Jesus Christ was Lord. And indeed, through them gospel came to transform more lives as others came to recognize that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and God has made him both Lord and Christ. If that's what's needed in a university dorm room and in halls of residence, then surely that's what's needed here and now for us. We pray that as we enter 2020, the book of Romans will have not an impact on the nation necessarily or the impact it's had in the Reformation, but that it will have an impact on us. That God, by the power of his spirit, for the glory of Jesus Christ, will use this word to change us by the gospel and make us partners in the proclamation of the good news. Let me pray. Father, as we close uh, this morning, as, as we embark upon this great letter, we do pray that the wonder of the gospel of your son will draw us in and that you will continue to put in us the implanted word, the truth of the gospel, that we will respond in faith, that that faith will lead to obedience and that we will be true partners with Paul, with the church in Rome, and with those throughout the last 2,000 years who have proclaimed 
the good news about Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your spirit. And we commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.